Hello and welcome to Think Fit Be Fit podcast. My name is Jennifer Schwartz. I'm the hostess and creator of this podcast network. This is a channel that teaches effective thinking for potent exercise. Thank you for joining us for the newest episode of Fitness for Consumption. Your new co-host Gregory Gordon and Paul Juris have created these high-quality and information-rich episodes. I encourage you to learn more about them and their experience at Instagram Fitness for Consumption or thinkfitbefitpodcast.com forward slash host. These episodes are monumentally valuable and are absolutely needed for a community of exercise lovers, trainers, and coaches that want to advance and elevate our conversations about exercise. The exercise world is notorious for creating products, new exercises, and using research advantageously. The goal of this exclusive podcast series is to examine the pop culture fitness through the lens of human movement science. Follow them on Instagram right now at Fitness for Consumption. And as loyal listeners to Fitness for Consumption on Think Fit Be Fit Network, we want to hear from you. If you have a favorite topic, something that shifted the way you think and move, share with us what your biggest takeaways are so far have been. You can leave us a comment or a review and we'll feature it on one of our episodes. Simple. Your review on iTunes will help us build our network and we appreciate your feedback. We look forward to seeing you on social media at thinkfitbefit underscore podcast on Facebook and Instagram. And make sure to sign up for our newsletter so you can receive the notifications for our live discussions and have access to our incredible resources. Thank you so much for joining us this week and sharing this podcast with your friends and family members who are ready for a better exercise brand. And without further to do, here is the fourth episode of Fitness for Consumption, the F Word Part 2. I can't wait to hear from you and have a great week. Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. 
We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Fitness for Consumption. Once again, I'm your host, Paul Juris, and I'm here with my friend and co-host, Gregory Gordon. And we are in part two of this episode, which we've entitled The F Word. And so we are talking about functional training. And in our last part, in part one, we've sort of challenged the prevailing wisdom around functional training, right? We've kind of thrown a wet blanket on it, as I said in the last part. So now in part two, I think what we want to do is we want to talk more about what is functional training really all about? So now we're going to start getting into some practical applications. So part one, the first point, is that functions an outcome not a process. So, Gigi, you know, what do we mean by that? Well, actually, I was going to ask you that question. So, can you <laughs> elaborate on that further? What do you mean by that specifically? Because I think someone can say, well, look, isn't exercise a process in general? So, how is function an outcome and not a process? That's a good question. And so, the way I would explain it is the goal of exercise or the goal of training or the goal of any kind of workout ultimately has to be some outcome, whether that outcome is weight loss or improved endurance or improved running speed or improved strength. Maybe it's simply I want to get stronger. I want to jump higher. I want to accomplish something. And so when we say functions and outcome, what we're really saying is that we've accomplished it, that something that we're measuring, something that is measurable is improving. That's what we're ultimately trying to do. Not we're trying to mimic or replicate some activity that we do. It's whether that exercise results in a meaningful outcome. And so that's what I mean by functions and outcome. It's not a process. It doesn't matter if you're copying some other movement or sequence of movements. What matters is that something that you're measuring is getting better. So the thing I'm thinking about is that um, oftentimes in a gym, I'll see someone uh, who's probably a golfer, maybe a baseball player, They'll take a cable machine or maybe a TRX, uh, a TRX. Oh, the ripstick. The ripstick, yeah. And what I'll see is that someone is using this machine to replicate what looks like the rotational motion of a golf swing or a baseball swing. And so there's this concept in motor learning about the idea of transfer and like what your whatever task you're doing, how well that actually transfers to the task that you are training for. So mm-hmm. if I am trying to be a better golfer, so in the gym, we would look at um, this idea of the performer, the task and the environment. And these are sort of the 
the things I need to manipulate and the closer I can get those things to the actual task I want to do, let's say it's a golf swing, theoretically, the better transfer I'll have of the, of the stuff I'm doing in the gym to the, the practical application I'm really trying to get better at. So Yeah, when you, theoretically anyway. Theoretically. So right. the, the long-winded thing I'm trying to bring up here is that if I look at someone using a cable machine and doing a rotational motion, and again, to your point about if we're just focused on the replicating motion part, how much of using a cable machine in a gym to replicate a golf swing is actually really helping me swing a golf club when I'm on uh, the golf course. The point is that we would have to really start to break apart all the aspects of what I'm doing in the gym and what components of it may actually help me perform the task I'm trying to get better at. If I get stronger in my rotational strength, that's actually something that could help me on the golf course. But I don't necessarily need to mimic the golf swing itself. There's a lot of things I can do in a strength conditioning setting to help get me stronger with rotational uh, movements. So, you know, what we're basically saying is that replicating motion is a process. It's not an outcome. (laughs) (laughs) Right? So we're saying, you know, function's an outcome, not a process. But Movement replication is a process and not an outcome. So I, I think, you know, that's the direction that this is taking. And, and I agree, just because you do something that looks like that activity that you're trying to improve, the only way that you know that it improved is it improved, right? So not that I perfectly match the activity that I'm replicating. It doesn't matter. What matters is that in the case of golf, in that instance, a, my club head velocity is increasing, or B, my ball distance is increasing, right? Ball flight distance is increasing. And, you know, look, we could take as an example Bryson DeChambeau, who, mm-hmm. you know, you know, we've talked mm-hmm. about. Um, so a friend of ours has been working with him, and the big talk around the PGA is how bulky and strong he's gotten, and he's hitting these 350 yard drives, which is longer than anybody else out Mm -hmm. there. And a lot of the stuff that he does is isometric strength training, Mm -hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so that's not moving at all, by the way. (laughs) That is, you know, muscle tension without motion. So what is he replicating there? He's not replicating anything. And so we need to be very careful. As you say, we need to tease it apart. It helps if we understand what's contributing to the outcome. And that's a whole different kind of discussion. But we do need to understand that what we really care about is whether we're getting better at something that's measurable and not necessarily whether we're replicating a movement in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I, I really to I really like the idea of measuring something because you know there's so many things about exercise and adaptations that we just don't have really good measures for. The counter side to that is if I'm, again, if I'm creating some very complex esoteric exercise where I've got someone standing on one uh, unstable device and they're sort of wobbling around and, you know, it's really hard to to measure what I'm seeing week to week on something like that. And so I think it's so obvious that it gets overlooked all the time that if I'm just doing general strength training and I can see over time, I'm actually able to use more load that's a really simple but a very meaningful measure of if I'm getting the outcome that I'm shooting for. Yeah, I, I agree. And we also have to be cognizant of the fact that sometimes the measures that we've created 
are designed only for the purpose of those measures, right? And we talked in our first episode about movement that solves a problem versus movement that is the problem. And a lot of the measures that we've developed are really just looking at how well we can perform some weird esoteric task. So what does that get us? It means we we improve at that thing, but does it mean we improve at anything else? And herein lies this the whole FMS discussion that we had in part one of this episode. Um, and there have been other studies, by the way, and Stu McGill has published a couple of these in which they demonstrate people improve in the FMS, but that didn't relate to improvement on anything else. Mm-hmm. So just because you get better at your FMS scores, that doesn't mean that something else is getting better with it. So the thing that you're measuring, in that case, the FMS scores, that's improving, but those measurements don't relate to other functional outcomes, so the measurement is wrong, right? Your focus on that thing that you're measuring is misplaced. So, you know, these are things that we need to consider in, like, what is function really all about? Um, We've talked about movements that appear to be associated with functional outcomes may, in fact, not relate to improved performance. And that's what we just said. Right. So just because you're, you're, you're doing something that looks functional, it may not be functional. But on the other hand, we also, through our discussion of leg extensions, which I know is going to get everybody up in arms, <laughs> you know, things that appear to be completely irrelevant and non-functional can actually have a functional purpose. Yeah, so that makes me think of, um, it's not a study, but it's there's a researcher named Dr. Wayne Westcott, and I recommend any of our listeners to Google his name. So he's a PhD in exercise science, but he was asked a question, so, you know, what would you recommend for, if I want to be a better tennis player, what would you recommend I do? And instead of him saying, well, I think you should... You know, first of all, you have to start with the FMS, and then there's going to be a lot of, you know, single leg stance on a stability ball. He just gave very basic instructions, and one of the things that he felt was most important was doing a calf raise or just going on and and using a machine. So the types of machines you see in your gym, which could be a plate-loaded calf raise or a standing calf raise, but just isolating, as it were, isolating the the ankle joint and doing calf raises and you know oh my goodness <laughs> joint isolation right that can't then, be functional can it and look at when you look at tennis motion it is front back side to side rotate it's everything like there it's every motion that the human body is capable of and yet this person who's quite credible is saying that this very simple task of, of plantar flexing your ankle against load will help you significantly in your ability to perform all these different motions that you need to be able to do on a tennis court. Yeah, absolutely. You know, there was, in, in another context, there was a researcher uh, at Harvard and Spalding Rehabilitation Hospital named Casey Kerrigan, and what she was doing was looking at uh, falling patterns in aging populations. Mm-hmm. And what she discovered through her research was that the single most significant factor in people falling was power, strength and power in the plantar flexors. That as people age, those muscles and the motor units associated with that, they go first. 
those are the first ones to go. Those are the first ones to atrophy and deteriorate. And when you get to the point where you don't have enough strength and power to plant or flex the foot in order to propel the body through space during gait, you end up shuffling and stumbling. Mm -hmm. And so what's the remedy for that? Plantar flexion, mm -hmm. calf raises, mm -hmm. isolated strength training around those muscle groups to improve the tensile characteristics of the tissue and the force production in those muscles. It's functional because it improves gait. Right. And that also makes me think of a conversation we've had off the record about, and this may be a little bit in the weeds for the casual listener, but in the fitness world, there's, uh, there's a lot of marketing behind increasing what we call proprioception, which to put it simply, is just your brain's ability to know where your joints are in space. And so uh, relative to what you just brought up about Casey Kerrigan, it's not that the people are, that are falling don't know that they're falling. They know that they're falling. They don't have the strength and power to correct it once their center of mass tips too far past their base of support. And so I can, look, proprioception is critically important. Uh, I'm not, we're not, I'm not diminishing it. I think, PJ, I can speak for you comfortably that you're not diminishing it. it not is, at all. It is important. And there's, and it, in a future episode, we'll actually talk about how both you and I use unstable surfaces in an interesting way to increase proprioception in a way that most people probably would have never thought of. But the point... Oh, you give me too much credit for yeah. that one, Gigi. Right, well, <laughs> we'll bring it up. And I know we've spoken about this. But sure. um, just to the point that with all the exotic things that someone could come up with about why someone is falling and wanting to like spend a lot of time and money on devices that may or may not increase proprioception, it comes down to the the ability to generate force to correct your center of mass getting too far past your base of support and doing something as simple as a as a calf raise can significantly help that absolutely well stated you know we we it's nice to know we're falling but it's better to know we can do something about it right so i agree completely i think that's a, a really good reference and a good point that you make um so you know i want to just ask the question how do you know if what you're doing is actually functional. And, you know, it kind of relates to this other issue that we're making, right? But we're all, we see this happening. We watch trainers. We watch all this. Now it's all virtual, right? Because of the pandemic. So you see all this virtual content coming out and people engaging in all these activities. How do you know? I mean, how do you know if anything in that is going to be functional and its outcome? Well, I mean, if, again, if function is an outcome, if I am doing something and I add a new variable and then my outcomes are better, it stands to reason you can say this new variable could be the last piece of a puzzle that's now finally helping me achieve this outcome. This new variable could be something that changed everything and now that I've added this new variable, I'm actually able to achieve this outcome. So it's a pretty broad question in terms of if you're getting better at your outcome, I guess you could say whatever you're doing, um, if you're seeing a noticeable improvement in your outcome, whatever you happen to be doing must be contributing to that to some degree. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it's difficult in, in a gym environment or, or again, now in this virtual world in which we're living, we don't necessarily have the ability to control this like an experiment 
so that like real research so that we can control all the variables and identify those things which are actually working. That said, if you're doing 10 things and you're getting a good result, something in those 10 things is working. If you're doing 10 things and you're not getting a good result, then something's not working. As you peel away the layers of the onion and you start to look more carefully at what you're doing, you may be able to determine that there's something in there that can be excluded from the program because it doesn't have a real benefit or vice versa, Mm -hmm. something that you identify which is really effective and you may want to key on that. You may want to focus on that. Another thing that we can do is we can look at what it is that our bodies actually are doing. What is their role? What functions do they provide that we can then determine are these things doing what they're supposed to? So for example, what do the legs do? Right? We talk about training legs, but I don't know if people necessarily look at their function and what they provide for us. So in my world, they do one of two things. The legs either fix your position in space, meaning you set your legs, you establish a base of support, and your intention is not to move. So your legs provide this stabilizing mm-hmm. function. I'm not talking about joint stability. I'm talking about total body stability. In that context, your legs are providing mm-hmm. stability. On the other hand, you may want to move around in space. And so mm-hmm. in that context, your legs are providing transportation. They move you through space. So when you're looking at how we determine if things are functional as it relates to the legs, what are they doing? Are they stabilizing you or are they moving you? And how can we measure that to determine if Mm -hmm. the things that we're doing are... Well, you know, if it's stabilization, you could do, you know, a single leg balance test or you can stand on one leg and absorb Mm -hmm. forces through medicine balls and see how much does it take to perturb you. Or you can actually perturb somebody and see if they're actually falling over. Um, Lewis Nashner did some work in that. You want to comment on that? Because that was a field of study that was pioneered by Nashner. Yeah. So, and that's, that's really interesting. And, you know, one of the, so like, in any of these sort of big umbrella issues in the health and fitness world, like function, there's a lot of sub categories and components. And so, but there's a subcomponent to that where it's all about the core. And again, the core is another one of these slippery terms where different people have different understandings of it. But let's just say the, the trunk and spine, the torso, and they, they firmly believe that that's why you have to do a lot of the, like these exercises have to be standing and that's why isolation is bad. Because if you're not, if I'm not standing and doing something like a, you know, a Turkish getup or something, you know, there isn't stress being transferred from my lower body to my core, to my upper body. And they really look at the core as, as this center of executive control. It's well put. Um, and Lewis Nashner, yeah, and Lewis Nashner, who you brought up, is really, you know, the the prime research in the area of like balance and and stabilization and so all his studies look at uh, look at putting people on platforms and then perturbing them trying to trying to basically uh get them to have to adjust their base of support so they don't fall and they've done 
lots and lots of studies. And what they yeah, find... Yeah, so let me, if I could just interrupt sure, for yeah. a second. So let me put that into context so maybe our listeners can sort of get a sense of what we're talking about. And, and I think anyone who's lived in an urban center can relate to this. You're standing on the subway, mm-hmm. right? And you're really not paying attention to what's going on. And the doors close and all of a sudden the train lurches. Mm-hmm. And now all of a sudden you find yourself falling and you're reaching for a pole or a mm-hmm. strap or the person next to you so that you don't go down. So that's the kind of situation that we're talking about. Okay. Right. Exactly. And so, you know, I, if, you think that the core is the executive command center of the whole body, you would have this core-centric view that in order for you to be able to stabilize yourself against this moving subway, first, you know, the core contracts, and then it goes from the core to the hip, then the hip to the knee, then the knee to the ankle, then the ankle to the toes. And actually, there are studies which are very well supported for anyone that wants to Google the stuff and go through some of the research. Very well supported. Um, And they're looking, by the way, they're not just looking at front to back perturbations. They're looking at perturbations from a bunch of different eyes closed, eyes open, all different uh, contexts. But what they see is that people really resolve that stability problem from their ankle, that they use what's called an ankle strategy. An ankle strategy just means that when you're, when, when you detect that a force is trying to destabilize you, the first thing you initiate are muscles around your ankle joint. You push back into the ground in order to be able to stabilize your body. And so it's not coming from the core. The core is, is not that it's totally irrelevant. There's some activity there, but it's not nearly as significant as the muscles around your ankle joint being able to contract with the right amount of force in the right amount of time. So let's go back to the calf phrase again. You know, interestingly, um, (laughs) there was a time, and and it probably hasn't waned yet, but there was a time when everybody was so heavily focused on the core. And there were people out in the fitness world that were suggesting the relative importance of a muscle group was determined by the sequence of firing. Mm -hmm. And therefore, if a muscle fired first, it was most important, which on its face is a ridiculous concept. But there are people who were really espousing that idea that it's a sequential thing. And, you know, to go back and pick on FMS a little bit, you know, the, the, the entire inception of FMS came from this notion that humans operate in a central to distal manner, that the fundamental movement schemes that emerge that is part of our developmental process was that we started with central command and then it moved out to the mm-hmm. periphery. What Lewis Nashner in his work clearly demonstrated was that that's not true. That the system is going to respond in a way that allows it to function effectively within the context of this environmental disturbance. In this case, yes, it was a distal to proximal strategy the first thing to turn on was the calf musculature, and then eventually it got up to the core. And by the way, they did a reverse perturbation. So they had people standing on a platform holding a handle, and what they did was they shook the handle so that the perturbation was applied at the top of the system, and the first response was still in the plantar flexors. <laughs> so... Yeah, so core is not the key to function. And, uh, you know, we'll get into that, I think, much more deeply in a later episode. But that is absolutely true, Gigi. And I'm glad that you brought that up because people have this overwhelming obsession with core. 
And in this particular instance, it doesn't necessarily relate to function unless strengthening it and using it effectively creates an improved outcome. In that case, it has really very little to do with the outcome. All right, PJ. So I think it's fair to say that we've established that um, the obsession over the core and the idea that it's it's literally um, the most important part of the body for every single movement is, you know, it's it's not accurate. However, obviously, core strength is important. And, you know, for functional movements, the core does have a role. So what do you see as the core's role in functional movement? That's a good question, and, and I like the way you phrase that because, you know, for most people that I speak to anyway, I think their notion is you're mm-hmm. just supposed to tighten the core, right? So maybe that provides spine stability or whatever it does, but just simply tightening the core doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. mean that you're going to be more functional. So what I like to do when I'm thinking about the core is what does it do? Well, one is it helps to position us so that we can actually move around in space and solve problems. So whether it's helping us to lean forward or lean backwards or lean to the side, create a body position that allows us to pick Mm -hmm. up objects and move. So positioning is one thing, and then posture Mm -hmm. is the other thing. So a posture and a position are very similar, but yes, so postural control is an integral part of core function. And so if we're thinking of using the core in a way that improves our posture and positioning, then I think we're on a functional path. Okay, so that's interesting to bring up because first, when people hear posture, I think everyone automatically has the idea of that poster that's in everyone's office and there's a skeleton, there's a plumb line going straight through the middle of the body. And so that's what most people think of when they think of posture, that it has to be this quote unquote neutral spine. That's right. It, you know, we see it in the in the testing rooms also in gyms. You know, there's this, uh, there's a chart on the wall and it's simply a grid and you stand in front right. of the grid and you're looking to see if your ear aligns over your shoulder and your hip and your knee and your ankle and people think that that's what posture is. I agree with you. So that is a posture, but that is not posture. So posture is just whatever, uh, presently whatever state your segments line up on top of each other, that is your posture at that given time. Yeah, whatever position you happen to assume in order to do something. So what those people are really thinking of is structural alignment to see if we have imbalances anywhere. But posture, you know, golf has a posture. If I'm laying down on my bed, I have a posture. If I'm sitting in a chair, I have a posture. These are all postures. And I think what you try to do with a posture is to get your body into a position of equilibrium, Mm -hmm. right? So that everything seems well balanced Mm -hmm. and controlled so that you can move effectively from that position. So that's the way I look at posture. Yeah, the other thing I think is that whenever people hear the word posture and they link it to any sort of training, functional or otherwise, they think of things that typically lean towards like long endurance type training, low load. And so, because again, when we think of posture, we, we typically think of someone sitting in this neutral spine position, let's say they're sitting at a desk. And sure, if you're sitting at a desk for long periods of time, Part of what you want to do in your strength and conditioning program is train those muscles, which a lot of them are well suited for long contractions over, you know, with, with low force. So that's part of it. But there's a, com- a completely other end of the spectrum 
which is if you're doing things rapidly and you could look at a professional baseball pitcher or you could just be a normal person and you're walking and you have to step off a curb and you misjudge it and now your base of support, your center of mass is almost tipping over your base of support, you've got to rapidly contract muscles there too. So thinking of posture as just this one-dimensional way of training, this very uh, heavy endurance-based light load um, you're, you're leaving out critical ingredients necessary to have a really functional core, at least in the way that I think we would view it. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, and think about it, you know, in terms of the long-term low load, we, we talk about those things as chronic, meaning it's ongoing, mm-hmm. it takes a long time, it's sustained. But, you know, the core is also very much involved in very rapid pulse-like mm-hmm activity. So for example, if I were going to stand up and I'm going to push a heavy object forward, I'm moving a refrigerator, there's something that occurs called a postural preset. Mm -hmm. And basically what that is, is just before you apply the force, you actually lean into it a little bit and you brace. And when you apply the force, you're accelerating. That's very rapid. So there are a lot of occasions when we're applying forces to objects and we have to set our posture very quickly, stabilize very quickly, but for a brief period of time. Mm -hmm. And those are what we call tonic contractions. So we need to do all of those things in order to prepare the core to do what it's supposed to do. So whether it's high velocity rotation or tonic pulse-like activity in order to stabilize us. If somebody is approaching us and we have to brace ourselves for impact, same thing. Those are the kinds of things we need to think about around the core. And then on the other end of the spectrum, so again, I think you're quite right. There's this idea that um, I think some people actually have the idea that they should literally be tightening their core 24 hours a day, even when they sleep. It's just that's what makes you have a functional core. And actually, it's the opposite. So what if you have to absorb forces? So if, you know, think of the analogy in a hurricane, like a telephone pole that has no flex to it, no, no, um, no real ability to absorb the forces. It's just this one long stiff pole. Those go down as opposed to something like a palm tree, which has some more flexibility um, inherently in its design and it can absorb the forces much better. That's right. I mean, the Japanese look at their architecture that way because, you know, Japan, they're very susceptible to hurricanes. And when they design tall buildings, they design them to give and move. And in many cases, we are so obsessed with keeping everything tight that if we are perturbed, if there is an impact against us, we can't give with it. And if you can't give, if you can't flow, if you can't be fluid in absorbing those forces then you're not going to be functional because you're going to be on the ground. So, yeah, so we we need to sort of change the way we look at function and core activity. Um, You know, and I also use the analogy sort of playfully in golf. I've heard people say, golfers, you got to tighten your core. And I'm thinking, well, gee, try to rotate your body and hit a golf ball when you're just tightening all your core muscles. You just, it's not going to happen. So, yeah, we do need to change the narrative of that. Um, You and I, I think, have both spoken to that on someone else's podcast, and I think we could probably spend some time diving more deeply into it in in one of our own episodes. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but I think maybe we just leave it at that and and see where, you know, the next discussion takes. Sounds good.
So yeah, let's leave it there for the core. Um, but before we move on, I just want to take a brief uh, moment to talk about upper body training as it relates to functional training, or at least mm -hmm. the way functional training is, is marketed um, in the consumer market. So if anyone Googles functional training, you're going to see a million exercises with squats and all sorts of things on stability balls and unstable surfaces and stuff, but you'll Kettle see very, and, yeah, yeah, you'll see very little in terms of specific upper body exercises, maybe something like a medicine ball throw. Mm -hmm. So, you know, obviously we know the upper body is pretty important for function as we, you know, uh, and for being able to, to perform movements. So and solve problems and solve problems. So yeah. How would, how, how do you see the upper body's role in, in functional movement? You know, I like the fact that you asked that because I don't hear that in the dialogue, right? When when people talk about functional exercises, it it always is, as you said in, in the earlier segment, it's you got to use your total body and you got to, you know, involve all these compound complex things. And sometimes we forget to think specifically about what the arms are doing. And, you know, that's a really good question. And I think the way I look at the arms is their role is simply to manipulate objects, Right. So what does that mean? It means to pick something up, to push it, to pull it, to twist it, to turn it, to play a piano, to shoot a basketball. All of those things are what we refer to in human movement science as object manipulation. So the question in terms of upper extremity function, arm function, does what I do help me to manipulate objects better? And if that does work, if whatever training I'm doing is improving object manipulation, then it's functional. And so it's interesting because just to, to put this into a, an historical context, and then we can move on from this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how many people are familiar with Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan was a Cy Young award-winning pitcher, you know, back in the, what is, 80s, 70s, 80s. Yeah. Um, you know, pitchers nowadays get hurt all the time. I think Tommy John surgery is ubiquitous at this point. It's yeah. like everybody's got to have it before they can move on with their it's career. It's almost right? prophylactic at this point. Yeah, you it do is. it even before you need it. Well, you know what? He never went through that. And one of the things that he did was he trained his biceps. So he did a lot of arm curls, isolated mm. arm curls Whoa. to strengthen his biceps. I know this is like, that's not a functional <laughs> exercise. Well, yeah, but let me say why it was actually functional for him. So what does the biceps do in a throwing motion? Well, one is it helps to stabilize the shoulder joint because it crosses the shoulder. So it's providing mm -hmm. shoulder stability. And then the other thing, more importantly, remember throwing a baseball is what we refer to as a whip. Mm -hmm. And the rate of velocity, the angular velocity at the elbow at the point of release is enormous. And so you need to decelerate the right. elbow joint in order to be able to throw the ball and not hurt yourself. Well, training the biceps helps you to do that. Right. So in that case, bicep strengthening is functional because it helps him to pitch more effectively, more efficiently, with a lower risk of injury. That's a functional exercise. So, yeah, we can train the upper extremity in a variety of different ways. But at the end of the day, the question that has to be asked is, what objects are you manipulating? How are you manipulating them? And then what do you need to do 
in order to improve your ability to do so. Yep, makes sense. Okay, so we're talking about function. We want to talk a little bit about what we can do, how we can do it. I think our gyms are environments where we can actually look at functional training, but the gyms have kind of left something (laughs) out. And we'll talk about that in our next segment. So let's uh, let's go back to that Nolan Ryan example for a second. So, um, you know, we're talking about functional movements, and then if we're going to work on creating these functional movements, we need tools. And in one of our earlier episodes, we spoke about using tools to build the, these different substrates that we need in order to be able to perform these motions. Mm-hmm. So most people, um, or at least pre-COVID, a lot of people would their toolbox was the gym that they were going to. And anyone that's been paying any sort of attention over the last 10 years has probably noticed something um, that's been taking place. And depending on where you go, it could be very drastic to maybe a little bit more subtle. But what we're seeing is that gyms are taking out exercise machines slowly but surely and some gyms... Or very rapidly in some cases, Yeah, Yeah, they're going, they're disappearing. And I can speak to a, a particular example of the the gym that I used to belong to in Soho and Equinox, you know, significantly pulled out uh, a large number of machines in order to create more open space for things that they would consider to be functional movements, which is kettlebells or pushing sleds or stretch, what have you. But the, and that is really the trend that, um, a lot of gyms are moving towards, which is really pulling out machines in favor of creating more open space, like a like a playground. Because again, the the idea and the bias is that these machines don't really have a role in functional movements. Yeah, so you know, I call that process oriented gym design, right? So why are they doing that? They're doing that so that they can engage in the process of functional training, but they're not considering whether those processes are contributing to meaningful outcomes. And I think you're right in looking at the bias against machines is to suggest that they are useless, Mm -hmm. right? They're not functional. One is because there's guided motion. And that's, that's one of the arguments that I hear a lot. When the machine is guiding your motion, it can't be functional. That's not necessarily true. I mean, uh, I, we did a research study at UMass to look at this, and this is going back to upper extremity function. But what we did was we looked at force production and accuracy with medicine ball throwing, and then we looked at different training uh, methodology to see if we would change the outcome of that force and accuracy. And what we discovered is you can fix somebody's path of motion You can free up their path of motion. You can do anything you want. You can restrain the body. In fact, there have been research studies that look at total immobilization. I mean, talk about guided motion. That's preventing motion altogether. Hmm. And even in those studies, they don't adversely affect the outcomes. So to think that because we're guiding motion, that the brain somehow is going to stop 
being able to control movement trajectories mm-hmm. is just, it's absurd on its face. And so, yeah, those machines aren't detrimental because the movement is guided. They serve a purpose because they're helping us to improve our force producing capacity and muscle ten- tension and tensile tissue tensile capabilities and et cetera and so on. Right. And another thing, so uh, I use this analogy all the time in my clinic and when talking about exercise. Um, so if I wanted to learn Spanish and I haven't had no Spanish classes prior, I wouldn't start out on like Spanish level 11. I would start out <laughs> at Spanish level one. And so even if you take that argument at face value, which again is, is not credible, but so why if like why if I have something that does have a guided motion and I can take someone that has no experience with exercise training and put them in um, put them in an exercise that I can I have restraints that I can make sure that I can control the range of motion I actually have plates that I know how much low they're moving like why wouldn't I why what's the problem with starting someone there and they can build a little bit of strength and then sure like if down the road if I want to you know create more complex exercises for them I can but why wouldn't I start someone there what's the problem with that well you know what I think the real problem is to be honest with you and some people may not want to hear this but I think if you're a personal trainer you, you're probably saying to yourself, well, I shouldn't do this because they could do this for themselves. And yeah. if they realize they can do this for themselves, and they're not going to need me anymore. So <laughs> I need to do something that's a little bit more exotic and, you know, more difficult and more challenging. So it gives me purpose. You know, at the end of the day, our job as a coach or a trainer or a clinician or whatever it is, is to help our clients get better, to help our yeah. patients get better, right? It's not about us. It's about them. And what we need to think about in in the context of what you just said, which is really important, if someone's starting out, they need to develop some comfort with what they're doing. They need to build confidence in what they're doing and familiarity. And those things are that which brings them back and keeps them going. And when you get people into a rhythm, that contributes to their improvement and performance over time, which also has effect on their emotional state mm-hmm. and their feelings of well-being. All of those things contribute to functional outcomes. So to just remove these tools because we have a bias against them or we don't like them, and, you know, show me the evidence in the scientific literature that says doing something on a machine is going to cause a problem. It's not. And so I think we need to adjust our thought process around this a little bit. Like, what are we really trying to do with people? Right. And I think the other, so the, the other common argument, not, uh, not only is uh, the issue about the, the guided motion, is that when you do something that is in a machine, it can isolate muscles and that you're only using this one group of muscles that this path of motion may be challenging and everything else in your body is entirely shut off. And Mm -hmm. look, we know that is not true. There's no credible evidence to that either. So even um, at the most basic level, if I'm doing something like a pec deck, so if I'm bringing these two handles together and, you know, the focus is on the shortening of my, the muscles that can bring my shoulder across my body, there's muscles on the opposite side of my body that still have to control the degree 
of the velocity that I'm moving and just can help control the shoulder joint motion. So it's, there's never a time when you're using a machine where you're only stimulating this one muscle. So for anyone that's avoiding machines because they, they're, they fear that I'm strengthening this one muscle at the expense of everything else in my body, you don't have to worry about that. No. And, you know, we did talk about that in our last segment uh, in this episode. So it's good that you bring it up and, and you bring it up in a slightly different context, which is really worth examining. And that is, in most cases, it's not necessarily what you're using. It's how you're using it that matters. And so to, to your point with the pec deck machine, you know, if I use it in a way that instead of focusing on just the load and, you know, a smooth, slow range of motion, if I move it rapidly, then what that's going to do is it's going to bring into play the antagonist muscles toward the end of the range of motion. The faster you go, the more the antagonists have to contract in order to decelerate the joint toward the end of the range of motion. So by changing the speed at which you do that particular movement, you can actually create a different type of interaction between antagonistic muscle groups, right? Mm -hmm. Between agonists and antagonists. And so that can be very functional as the body is learning how to control movement around these joints because you have to control the acceleration as well as the deceleration. Another example of it's not what you use but how you use it, people look at a chest press machine traditionally as you sit in it, you grab the handles, you push the handles. Where is it written that you can't stand in front of it, grab the handle in front of your body and pull it towards you like a rowing machine? Mm -hmm. So... Any machine could be used in a variety of ways. So to look at an object like that and simply cast it as not helpful, as bad for you, is really inappropriate because we can do things differently in different contexts with different products and objects that will actually get us some interesting outcomes. Yeah, so I think at the, at the end of our first episode... We spoke about ha having this ecological approach to fitness by trying to use everything that you have available to you. Sure, and you can use many different machines for the same purpose. And, you know, one of the things that you and I have spoken about in the past is there's, there's sort of a scientific theory around this concept that we refer to as the theory of affordances. Mm -hmm. And... You know, there's a sort of there's an analogy, there's a story that I tell when I'm trying to get trainers to understand what affordances mean. And the way the story goes is you give an infant a toy telephone. And so what do they do with it? Eat you it. Know, they, they eat it, right? <laughs> they, they put it in their mouth, they bang it on the floor, they stretch the cord. Let's say it's the old style uh -huh, telephone, uh -huh. right? It's not a flip phone. It's not a mobile phone. Um, you know, old style with a dial, right? And you, we take it, we say, no, no, that's not what you do with it. What you do is you pick the receiver up, you put it to your ear, you dial the thing, it makes little, you know, dinging noises. No, that's not what they do with it. What we're doing is imposing our rules on that object and that infant. That thing is anything it affords. So for the infant who is not playing by the rules, it affords a bunch of things. It affords the opportunity to stretch the cord and, and put it in their mouth and bang it all over the place and throw it. That's exploration. That's actually helpful. That's developmental. But what we do with equipment is the same thing. We say, well, here's this piece of equipment and here are the rules that apply to it. 
and you can only use it this way. And by the way, using it that way is bad for you. So don't do that at all. So just forget the machine altogether, right? <laughs> but we bought so, it anyway. <laughs> but we bought it anyway, right? So, you know, the theory of affordances is telling us, no, these machines can be different things to different people in different ways and, mm -hmm. and how you position yourself and how you move on them and how you use them can all enter into the discussion of what it is that makes a functional activity. But I will put one caveat in there. Let's do this within reason. Let's mm -hmm. do this within common sense. Let's not use machines in a way that is so totally inappropriate that it actually can injure you. Mm -hmm. And there have been instances in the past when things like that have happened, and they're horrible, and people get really badly hurt. So folks, let's be smart about it. Let's apply some common sense to this. And if you're using something which is really inappropriate or is way out of the boundaries of the way a piece of equipment is designed, then don't do it. So I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that really leads us well into our next segment, which will be on practical applications for functional training. Okay, so we'll get to that next. We'll be right back. Okay, welcome back. Uh, Gigi and I have been talking about the context of function and why certain things are functional or not functional and how we should sort of change the way we look at functional activity. So now that we've done that, let's talk more about how we can actually craft a functional workout. So we'll get really more practical here will start to look at what you can do either as a consumer of fitness or a fitness professional. How can you put together a well-thought-out, well-designed functional program? So what would you think the first thing we should be doing here, Gigi? What, what do we do first? Yeah, at, at the risk of sounding too simple, the first you just have to have a goal. So what are you trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish? Right. And the implication there is our job as a professional is to help them get results. If they have a goal, then we have to ha help them achieve that goal. And that means getting results. So that's first and foremost. I mean, we, we need to dispense with the idea that we're going to do things because they're cool or because this is what I learned and this is what someone told me. And, you know, we're going to jump into kettlebell swings and overhead squats. Well, if, if it's related to their goal, sure. If that's going to help them achieve something, sure. But yes, identify a goal and then figure out what the requirements are for right. achieving that goal. Exactly. Now, putting it into more of a functional context, let's, let's think about an exercise like an Olympic lift, right? Like a snatch. So the goal, if you recall the goal of the movement, if their goal is just to do the snatch, the goal of the movement is to be able to accelerate this bar vertically and get it overhead in a stable posture. But there are a lot of requirements to doing that. One is you need to be able to maintain fore and aft balance while you're accelerating this bar in a vertical direction. So if your center of mass is moving too far forward or too far backward, then that will negatively affect your ability to do that exercise. So what do we need to do? We need to work on balance and posture. We've got to be able to apply force down into the ground in order to accelerate that bar in a vertical direction. So that becomes a requirement of the task. So 
those are the environmental constraints, right? The, the biomechanics and the challenge to our balance. And then we have substrates that we need to develop in order to perform those things. Mm -hmm. So the, the requirements of the task dictate which substrates we have to develop. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to be testing. That's what we need to be measuring. That's what we need to be identifying. If there are any gaps there, if we think that there's a lack of range of motion, if there's a lack of strength, a lack of power, rate of tension development, postural stability, those things have to be developed in our training program. And when we do that, the outcome is improved performance in a snatch, which makes it functional. Right. Agreed. And, you know, the idea again of measurement is that any sort of measurement that um, you can do that is some validity to it, meaning it's actually measuring what you think it might be measuring is good. And to be able to, to, to have an exercise program where you're consistently measuring um, your efforts is really important, I think, for uh, making sure that what you're doing is actually, you know, put trending you towards the outcome that you're hoping for. Yeah, I think there are, there are a couple of ways of looking at it, too. And, and let's face it, in the fitness world, given the way things work, measuring on a regular basis can also be risky. So a lot of clubs don't actually do repeat measures because, God forbid, you know, their clients show that they're not getting better at something, then they're going to lose customers, clients, members. And then there's the whole validity issue, which I think is really interesting. And I've commented about this before, but if I'm a runner, if I'm a marathon runner, what measurement is really critical to me? And really, ultimately, it's the time that I ran the race in. Um, that's what you're getting judged on, right? The winner of the race isn't the one with the lowest heart rate. The winner of the race is the one with the lowest time. And so if we're using heart rate to measure our performance in an activity like that, it's not a valid measure. Mm -hmm. So we need to think about what we're testing, how we're testing it. As you said, strength is a great thing to test. Are we getting stronger? If we've identified a substrate that needs development, are we getting stronger if strength is the one? And that's easy to measure. And we track that and we measure it over time. So I think that's an important thing to do. We have to take very specific, valid measurements, look at the substrates that we're trying to build, and then find those gaps and work on those substrates. So, so yeah, go ahead. So that brings me back. That makes me think of what we stated in the beginning, which is a functional exercise is any exercise that helps you achieve an outcome, mm -hmm. right? So I have one major neon light caveat to that, which is, is it always about that? Because from... As I mentioned before, I do uh, a type of neuromuscular treatment. And so when I've got my neuromuscular cl clinician hat on, I'm thinking about the, st the structural considerations to performing these exercises as well. Um, I hear what you're saying. And I think your point, and this is something that we raised in our first episode, Why We Move, is that we need to evoke adaptation and that adaptation needs to occur in different ways and in different places. So I think I, the argument that you seem to be making here, and correct me if I'm wrong, is 
Does it always have to be functional or can we just focus on some type of adaptation, even if it's very specific to an activity that we are engaged with? And I think, you know, my answer to that is, sure, we should be doing that. But let me just push back a little bit and say, if we do that, doesn't it ultimately improve our outcomes? Well, here's, I think the take-home message to me, at least, is this. It's always about outcome at what cost. And so when I ask someone about short-term and long-term goals, because me, as someone's trainer, I'm always really thinking about longevity in the long term. Mm -hmm. But, and I always say, look... There is nothing wrong with pushing towards the red line for a period of time um, and to achieve these goals in a certain period of time. But the if I train someone like that year in, year out with no break, no periodization, that when in 10 years from now, they may have a hard time getting out of bed. So even though they achieve the functional outcome now, it's at what cost? I think for most people... That, you know, we just have to consider that there, there can be costs to a specific thing that we're trying to do to achieve an outcome and just to be aware of them. And that most of the time there's ways of modifying and planning appropriately to where, you know, you can do, you can have short-term goals in the scope of a long-term uh, longevity-focused approach. So it sort of speaks to the notion of progression right it and planning for change over time and and i agree look if you're working with a professional athlete and they are subjecting themselves to very strenuous challenging conditions then your short term training goal has to be to help them to mm-hmm. deal with that right if you're dealing with just someone who wants to maintain their health and fitness Pushing someone to an extreme like that is not necessarily going to benefit them. So let's weigh what we're doing with whom we're doing it and understand that there's a balance of things that need to occur. So periodization, planning mesocycles, right? Putting it into an overall program rather than saying, hey, you know what? We're just going to jump right into this from the beginning I'm going to throw the whole kitchen sink at somebody because that's what we do. And then I would ask, well, if you do that, then what's next? <laughs> like, right. if, if you exhaust your entire repertoire in the first four weeks, then what do you do? Like, where do you right. go from there? Right. There's a running joke, by the way, in fitness. So, you know, what is the worst day of a client's life? It's the day after their trainer comes back from a workshop. <laughs> God, that's so true. <laughs> because oh, they're going to do all that stuff whether they need it or that. not. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we were all guilty of that at some yeah. point. Um, so, yeah, let's, let's plan something that is wise and careful and developmental. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, look, you can start like what I like to do is I like to put in, I like to create a plan that runs on six to 12 week cycles. And in the first cycle, we just work on strength and mobility and range of motion. So just basic strength, mobility, Mm -hmm. stability, and get people to where they need to be so that they can start to do more challenging things. And then Mm -hmm. I like to get into after that, maybe we start working on velocity. Mm-hmm. and power. Mm-hmm. 
and mm. things like that. And then what I like to wrap around that or what I call the functional activities, let's come up with some things that challenge complexity. We create things that are more complex, a little bit less stable, a little bit more challenging, multitasking. We need to do that judiciously, not necessarily just throw it in because that's what we want to do. But it sounded like you just said only that third segment is the functional segment. And, you know, we've been talking this whole time about basically it's, it's because starting from segment one, just building those basic substrates of strength is still, you know, a major component of the functional outcome. That's right. So yeah, it's true. I do have that sort of as a third module in the training program uh, because what happens when we're doing functional, quote-unquote, functional exercise, we're in the process of engaging in these activities, those activities tend to be more complicated and they challenge us in different ways and so what happens is we have to manage intensity and complexity. And as exercises become more and more complex, the intensity should be coming down. And then what we do to improve someone's performance over time is we gradually increase the intensity very slowly in these complex movement patterns so that they can adapt appropriately. And then while we're doing that, we're also looking for those substrates that need further development so that we can start to develop the overall outcome in a, in a more effective way. What a lot of people tend to do is they give someone a highly complicated movement and they load it up. Mm -hmm. And that's a recipe for disaster. Right. So that really brings us into the conversation of skill training versus strength training. Mm -hmm. And um, what happens a lot is that the lines get blurred. So we spoke in an earlier part of this episode about uh, fairly common in the gym, I'll see someone loading up a cable machine and mimicking a golf swing. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that they are trying to combine strength training and skill training into one exercise. And so if I'm loading up a golf swing on a cable machine, there's some carry over to the biomechanics, but everything else is totally different. And, you know, like the idea of something being able to transfer is, again, based on this performer, the task and the environment. So what we want to do in the strength training component is, again, really focus on building these substrates. And then like I, it's, I, I am a strength and conditioning coach. I couldn't tell someone, I mean, I, I know how to swing a baseball bat, but I shouldn't be someone's hitting coach also. I don't know enough about the nuances of hitting to be someone's hitting coach. To be really good at the skill of hitting, you should work with a coach that's really going to work on the skill of hitting. And they just sort of assume that you have all these substrates available. Their job is now that you're, you've got the engine, that they can show you how to drive the car. No, absolutely. You know, so much of training today seems like we're trying to combine skill training and strength training. And, and yeah. that almost by definition becomes functional training. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake. I, I agree with the idea that we need to separate those things. Look, I worked with the PGA of America. I work with golf professionals. Can I tell someone the fundamentals of a golf swing? Sure. I mean, you know, I've, been, I've worked in the industry and I play the game. So there's some basics that I can do, but I'm not a teaching professional. So when we set up our PGA kinematics lab down in Florida with the PGA of America, we set up a training center. We weren't teaching people how to swing. 
We were helping them to develop the substrates that they needed so that when they stood on the tee with their, with their golf pro, they now had the ability to do the things that the pro wanted them to be able to do. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I separate training. When you're in the gym, you're working on substrates. You're working on endurance and strength and power and flexibility, range of motion, blah, blah, blah. Right? We could talk about all those, and we have. But then you go practice the skill independently. I was working with a trainer who's a rock climber, and he's a rock climbing instructor, indoor, right? So bouldering. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he used to do the same thing. He used to get do one-on-one sessions with his clients, and he would kind of blend the climbing and the strength training. And I said, that's not going to work. You know why? Because you do get a little bit of improvement in both, but you don't really get much from either when you're mm-hmm. trying to put them together. So separate it. Do your strength and conditioning work and then do your climbing training. And he came back to me like a month later and he said, you know, I've been doing that with all my clients and they are much better. And so, yeah, we should not be thinking about combining skill and strength. Right. Separate them. Go practice your task independently of what you do in the gym. Because ultimately it comes down to problem solving. And like we said in the very first episode, so if the, if I'm spending a lot of time in the gym solving a problem, my biggest concern is, you know, obviously I'm concerned about injury, but I'm so much more concerned about efficiency, just taking advantage of the time that we have with people that are paying us for our time. Mm-hmm. Because at best, most of us have one to two hours a week, which... That's not in the in the grand scope of things. That's not a lot of time to help someone really, you know, get these adaptations that they, they really are hoping for when they sign up for us. So I'm so much more concerned about efficiency. And if you're spending 45 minutes with someone that is a golfer and has some back pain and wants to, you know, part of the reason they're signing up for you is to get in shape to play golf, then again, yeah, focus on the strength and conditioning in the gym. Let them work with their golf pro to play golf, but don't take 45 minutes of recreating a golf swing with the cable machine because you're not getting a lot of the adaptations you want on the strength and conditioning side, and you're certainly not helping them solve the problems they really need to solve on the golf course. Right, you know, and put simply... In many cases, the best exercise is really the most simple exercise. It's Hockey's not the, it's, it, this goes back to, you know, when you hear hoofbeats, you don't look for zebras. It, you know, you need to think in terms of what is the most simple, effective way of causing adaptation that will lead to a positive outcome. And you're right, if you have two hours a week and you're breaking it up and you want to do a little bit of both you want to do some fundamental substrate development but you also want to do some some functional some complex mm-hmm. movement schemes so build a program in that hour that gives you enough saturation remember we talked about in our first episode the the idea of muscle confusion doesn't really work right you need repetition mm-hmm. you need saturation you need to be able to repeat things enough so that you do get that change. So how much time do you need to give to different types of exercises to build up those substrates so that you can induce change in those areas? It's not going to happen unless you have focused attention on those things and it's repeated. So in any given session, maybe 75% of it, at least if you're in the early stages of a program, 75% of it should be basic exercise 
and strength and conditioning development, maybe 25 should be complex multitasking, what I call skill-based activities. Mm -hmm. Um, And then as you shift the focus towards dynamic training, then those proportions can change too. But I rarely, in my work with professional athletes or amateur athletes or everyday people, spent an entire session doing complex movement schemes. There was always some blend of traditional strength or conditioning Mm -hmm. work or cardio conditioning and some other types of things that I call my functional toolbox, right? It's having tools available to me that include some type of complex movement with some level of stability change. So as things become less stable and more complex, those exercises are much more challenging. I have a toolbox. There's a system that I use in order to progress through that toolbox. I spread it out over a very long period of time, could be two years even, but blending things so that you get a good balance of activities is probably more effective than focusing on one thing. Yeah, and that also just reminds me to bring up something we spoke about in the first episode too, which is fun. So uh, there's definitely, uh, in, in a well-rounded training program, there's a certain percentage of time that can be devoted to things that are just, you know, novel challenges that take someone's mind off some of the, sometimes the drudgery of just hard strength and conditioning work. Um, but yeah, again, the overall point is that those should be like the little cherries on top. That shouldn't be the, you know, the meat of the program. Yeah. You know, we, we said potentially functional training is a euphemism for keeping people from getting bored. Um, (laughs) but you know, let me, let me argue against myself for a moment. Those things are important and I'm not saying that they should be the mainstay in any training program, but let's face it. If people are not having a good time, then maybe they stop coming. And if they stop coming, then they're not making progress toward their goals. And so that becomes non-functional. So if you can include some fun activities and make people smile and make it enjoyable, doing so is going to keep people coming back. And that is ultimately what you need in order to achieve your goal. So with that, I think we've pretty much... You know, given our point of view, our perspective on what functional training is, I have some final thoughts. Yeah. Um, I'd like to start off with this thought that, remember, a functional exercise, and you just said it a minute ago, a functional exercise is anything that helps us achieve a goal, right? It doesn't have to replicate movements of daily living. It doesn't have to be some complex, exotic movement. It can be something as simple as an arm curl or a leg extension or a heel raise. If it helps us accomplish a goal, then it's functional. So that Mm -hmm. is one of my final thoughts. Um, Another one, measure something, right? We Mm -hmm. talked about measuring. Try to measure stuff. Try Mm -hmm. to track things, track improvement over time. Make sure that it is relating to the goal or outcome, right? So is it a valid measure? And don't be afraid to say, you know what, this isn't working. We've Mm -hmm. tried it, it's not working. There's nothing empirically wrong with doing that. We're willing to say to our clients, our objective is to get you to your objective. And if what we're doing isn't working, let's not hide that fact. Let's Mm -hmm. shift gears and get into something else. So I think that's really important. 
Yeah, and and for agency of anyone that is a client that has a personal trainer, um, you want to see objective proof that things are trending in the dire- right direction. And if they're not, you know, at least you want an explanation for like what may be happening. And I think a lot of times a consumer feels that if they ask their trainer about things relating to their goal, that the trainer might take it offensively or may take it as a shot that like they're second guessing what they're doing. And really, I say this with 100% honesty, I love clients that are invested in their program as much as I am or more, you know, honestly, they should be more invested than I am. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. like people that, you know, have concerns about the way things are going or not, that's great. You know, as a professional, you, those are the people you really want to work with. So I would encourage anybody that hires a trainer, you know, obviously you don't want to come off as you're accusing somebody of something, but yeah, you should ask questions. You should feel empowered to want to see ob- objective data that your that your program is helping you achieve whatever outcome you set out to achieve. Yeah, I agree with you. And then I have one final thought here. And you know, I said at the beginning of this episode, in part one of this episode, that I like to challenge conventional wisdom. That's just the way I am. And in this episode, I really am going to get into it. And I think I've held up my side of the bargain here. I have really challenged the conventional wisdom around functional training. What I would say to our listening audience, don't be afraid to challenge conventional wisdom. Just because everybody's telling you that there's something that you should be doing or something you shouldn't be doing, you know what? You don't have to listen. And if you don't listen, it doesn't mean you're going to fall off the edge of the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So forget about what people are telling you, what they're chirping in your ear. Do what's right. Look for evidence. Find the science. Understand the underlying principles. Empower yourself to make decisions on your own, and you will do much better, and you'll be better off for it in the long run. Yep, totally agreed. I think uh, the the baseline for me is always... Does this make sense? And in in terms of functional training, if you just go a little bit under the surface and start to look at all the marketing stuff that's out there and you just say to yourself, does this really make sense? I think you'll find a lot of times that what you're being inundated with in terms of functional training, it doesn't really make a ton of sense. And hopefully what we presented in this last podcast, you know, makes a bit more sense in terms of using just a wide array of tools to help you achieve these outcomes that you're looking for. Absolutely agreed. So to our listening audience, thank you so much for joining us on this two-part episode, the F word, where we covered functional training. Hopefully we've given you a different perspective from which to look at this. And we look forward to presenting to you uh, some new exciting concepts in upcoming episodes and hopefully we'll be participating with you then. Yes. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you soon.